I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Royal Automobile Club talk show. Uh, We are recording this podcast just before the club's annual motoring dinner, and we are delighted to welcome the star of the evening, Roger Penske. Well, a pleasure for me to be here to do this podcast, and it's an honor to be able to uh, join the festivities tonight at the Royal Automobile Club. It's a very special place. Well, we, we are delighted to have you, and, and tonight's dinner um, will celebrate your illustrious career uh, in motorsport and mark 50 years since you first entered the Indianapolis 500. Um, for those of you watching this on the motorsport website or the uh, Royal Automobile Club uh, website, uh, you're going to the dinner, and that's why we are all dressed in, in, in formal attire um, uh, this evening. Correct. Um, uh, I'm, uh, as Rod mentioned, I'm Joe. I'm Joe Dunn, editor of Motorsport Magazine. I'm joined by Samarth Canal, who's our star reporter uh, on the magazine. And together we're going to try and cover uh, as much of Roger's incredible career uh, and a lifetime's involvement in motorsport as we can. Um, first as a driver, then as a team owner and, uh, and, and a businessman. Um, I'd like to start maybe just by um, mentioning to, to the listeners uh, what we just spoke about and, and your hectic itinerary. You were... You, were bought, you landed a, a few hours ago, and you'd been in a party last night, and I gather you're then flying off tomorrow morning somewhere else. Well, I think it was a busy day yesterday. I was in Phoenix, Arizona last night for our winter circle. This is where we crown our best operators and salespeople in our truck leasing business, as you know. Uh, in the U.S., we have over 300,000 trucks in our fleet, so these are pretty special people that make all that happen. So I left, got here about uh, 4.30, and uh, I'll leave early in the morning to a trip to Germany. So it's a, it's a whirlwind tour, but a very, very exciting time for me tonight. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, so uh, it was, there's so much ground to cover. Um, I, I'd like to start by talking about the Indy 500. Um, uh, not the first race that you uh, uh, took part in, um, in 69, which, which we are celebrating tonight, but the first experience of the race, uh, a few years before that, I believe in 1951, your dad took you to the race. I just wonder whether you could tell us what your memories of that experience were. Well, that was, uh, you know, pretty special as a young man, 14 years old, and your dad say, how would you like to go to the Indy 500? I'd listen to it on the radio. Obviously, I was uh, already bitten by a car bug. So uh, to go there, and we didn't have very good seats. We could hardly see the cars on the track in those days, old wood grandstands. But uh, Lee Wallard won that race, and I guess that uh, I was infected, uh, you know, by Indianapolis, uh, you know, that uh, weekend and certainly that race. And I went to every single race except the four years when IRL, Indy Racing League, and uh, USAC, uh, we, we got into some d- differences, so we stayed out of that race. But, uh, you know, when you think about it, uh, 46 years, you know, we've been competing there and have 17 wins. It's a, it's a magnificent magic place. And, and, I mean, what is the, what is the magic of, of the race? And for, for a UK listening audience, how would you kind of um, explain the kind of the, the romance of, of, of the Indy 500? Well, I think it started out of a, as a month's journey when you went there and you practiced and you qualified and, and then on into the race. But uh, 
It's the greatest automobile sporting event in the world. I think that, uh, you know, they'll have over 300,000 people there this year. It's an amazing oval, two and a half miles, and it brings the greatest drivers. I don't think there's a Formula One drive, an IndyCar, NASCAR, anyone around the world that wouldn't like to have his face on that Borg Warner Trophy at the Graham Hill, Jackie Stewart. Think about some of the people, Jack Brabham, uh, that have raced there and, and been successful. So to me, uh, we've built our brand with that. And as I tell people, uh, and I'll say this tonight, that, uh, you know, I think there are three major things in your business and in your racing career that you look at. One is building a brand, and I think the Indianapolis 500 has certainly built our brand. Uh, you know, we operate, uh, you know, in five countries. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, it's amazing when you think about that. But it set the brand value for us. Uh, the technology, you think about, we had stopwatches. We had to look at a car to find out how fast we went to. to on, you know, online today, you can see every driver, every move to uh, certainly the technology's growth. And then the people. You see uh, racing and building that indie team for me was so important. I think that's the common thread through our businesses. And that was that year with the US 500. Uh, when you boycotted Indy. And, and, and take me through why Indy was boycotted and why Team Penske decided to run in the alternative race. Well, I think that it was USAC at that particular time. It was the sanctioning body, and uh, we had differences on how we wanted to, to run IndyCar. They had these other series. They had stock cars. They had midgets. They had championship cars, and there wasn't the focus. And we just couldn't get together them as a car owner group. So, obviously, probably not a good idea as I reflect back uh, today, but we left the series, but came back, obviously, in, in 2001 uh, and uh, had victories. They almost uh, had three in a row. So, uh, I look back. Not a very good idea, but uh, I've moved on from that uh, probably four-year hiatus. Um, uh, you, you mentioned some of the great drivers. Um, uh, obviously, Mark Donahue is, uh, is is someone that all of our readers and, and, and listeners here um, uh, remember. I mean, can you talk us a bit about those early years and your relationship with him and your partnership with him? Um, presumably, it was you against. I mean, it must have felt very much like it was you against the rest of the world. Well, I think that, uh, you know, Mark was an engineer from Brown University up in the Northeast. Uh, I saw him racing in sports cars, quite honestly, at Lime Rock Park. And a friend of mine said, you got to watch this guy. Well, we got together and formed, uh, you know, a team. Uh, it, was, it was like a brother. And, uh, you know, we started to build, uh, you know, Penske Racing at that, t that day. It's now Team Penske. But, you know, we got together, and our goal was obviously uh, to go to Indianapolis. And I was fortunate to have a sponsor, Sunoco, an oil company in Philadelphia. And I guess we went to Indianapolis our first year was seven people. And we go back in 2019, we'll have almost 700 years of experience in our garage. Mark Donahue was uh, an immensely busy man. It's, it's hard to imagine nowadays how busy he was because in 1971, for example, he raced uh, in Grand Prix. he took an F, uh, it was a world championship podium at Mosport. He was racing in USAC races. I mean, it's hard to count. I have two hands, I can't count how many races he did. and. He had a very in-depth knowledge of the cars because of his engineering well, degree. Well, his right? engineering background was a real asset to us. Maybe it was an unfair advantage, as we called it in those days. <laughs> but uh, we were competing in, in road racing. We were competing in some NASCAR, the International Race of Champions, Formula One. So there was lots of things that we were involved in. But, you know, Mark was uh, the guy that uh, swept the floor at night. Uh, he drove the truck if he had to, and he worked on the cars. And I think that that common thread of, of a flat organization and a personal commitment is really the foundation to our to our company today. Some sixty six thousand people, and certainly our race team. And he was synonymous with the Penske name, of course. Uh, you said he drove the trucks. How did 
how did he come to doing that? I mean, did you ask him to, or did he jump? Well, jump? we were many nights. We would work all night long. The mechanics would, and we had to get off to a race, and he would sleep and get up and drive the truck to the track. So, you know, it, it, that's the kind of guy he was. I mean, he was all in. Uh, he was passionate about motor racing. He wanted to be a winner, and he also wanted to set a standard, a different standard maybe than what we had seen with, in the past. And what's interesting to me as well is is uh, you said the unfair advantage before, and, and uh, one of the ones that always astounds me is in the Trans Am series when you dipped your Camaro in acid. Now, how did you come to that idea? I always wonder how you invent such a trick to save weight. Well, it was interesting. Uh, you got a body in white, which was basically a unibody type construction. And we found an acid tank in California where we could dip the chassis in and it would take 50, 60, 70 pounds off. Well, the first couple of times when they pulled it out, it was kind of like a sock. But then we got the right uh, ingredients and uh, we picked up uh, probably 50 to 60 pounds of, uh, of weight. And then, of course, the roof had a lot of oil can in it. So we put a, a, uh, a cover on the roof, uh, as, you, as you would call a, uh, a leather cover, which you had on many cars at that time and kind of had perforation on it so they couldn't see the oil can we told them we put that on there because it made the car faster like a golf ball so we had some fun with that probably the most interesting uh, unfair advantage is when we built a 30-foot fueling rig and put the uh, uh, the 55 gallon drum or whatever 30 gallons on top of it and we could fuel in about three seconds and everybody else was taking uh, eight or nine or ten seconds so that lasts for about two races and they said tear it down and take it home <laughs> Speaking of uh, unfair advantage, the other, the, I think maybe one of the first ones was the Xerix Special, um, which I understand is being rebuilt at the moment. Um. Well, the Xerix Special, uh, you know, had a, an interesting history. It was an Indy car that uh, was driven at the Watkins Glen Grand Prix, I think by Walt Hanscom, if I'm not sure, and it was damaged. It was a Cooper. I bought that car, and then Jack Brabham came to uh, uh, Indy with a 2.7 liter Cosworth. So we put the Cosworth engine in the Formula One chassis, and then we had a young man uh, in, in Philadelphia. We built a body, and I sat in the center, and of course won the Riverside race, won the Laguna Seca race with it. And of course then the people said, well, you can't sit in the center. I said, what about the two liter Coopers today that are running? They didn't care. They said, change it. So we changed it. And we still won with that vehicle uh, many times. And then that ended up being the vehicle that Bruce McLaren put a Buick engine, a V6 Buick, which started McLaren. So Bruce and I were great friends because of the Cooper relationship. But uh, a very interesting car and uh, fast. And I remember bringing it over to uh, running it at uh, Bank Holiday in August. Uh, and I remember Dunlop had uh, black tires and the green spots were the ones you ran in the rain. I was able to run those in the dry, and I remember one that day, and they, the scrutineering people were all over us. But uh, I remember Graham Hill came over and helped get me through inspection after the race. So pretty exciting <laughs> times. How amazing that uh, that car should have two, well, a seed really for, um, for Bruce McLaren's subsequent empire. And obviously you started, you started off in it. Um, I, I want to jump forward um, slightly to uh, your Formula One um, uh, years, um, and uh, could you tell me sort of why you got involved, and 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 also um, uh, whether you feel that you should have stayed a bit longer? 
Well, as you know, we started, we bought Graham McRae's shop down in Poole, I think, in 1973-74. Our first PC1 Formula One car was designed by Jeff Ferris, as, as you probably know. And uh, it was really a start. We were looking at Formula One. We ran a season. Uh, John Watson then became our driver. Uh, we won the Austrian Grand Prix. You know, obviously, Mark, we had a tragic accident with Mark uh, uh, Donahue in Austria years before. And... Uh, amazing that uh, you know what we were able to gain but the thing was that it was a cottage industry here in the UK you know with, with with Formula One people from New Zealand and Great Britain and Australia it was just seemed to me the technology was here we didn't really have it in the US and this chance to to move into this country and because of my relationship racing Coopers and Monaco and those things I had a real good feel so I made the investment uh, we had some very good people, Heinz Hofer and then uh, Derek, Derek Walker, and really Nick Gouzet is the one that really gave us the, the real bandwidth to, to build the company. But uh, Formula One was something that was, was important, but as we started to get to Indianapolis and, and see the success we could have with Penske-built cars, even though they came from the UK, you know, it was really amazing. And, you know, with IROC and NASCAR and all the things we were doing, we felt from a business perspective, and B2B is very important to me with the racing being the common thread, we would then continue uh, in, uh, in the U.S. And, you know, I guess it was so at 76, we finished fifth in the championship. And I think we're the only American team uh, since we won in Austria back in uh, 76. I think you probably know the numbers better than I do that's won a race. So it's a, I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. Well, you're, you're still the only American team to have won a race, as you say. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> um, something that strikes me as a team owner is that you can have an emotional connection with your drivers. And, and when Mark Donahue lost his life that day at the Austrian Grand Prix in practice, how hard was it to keep everyone's spirits up and, and stop you know, heads dropping? And what, what was the general feeling in the paddock? I assume it wasn't great. But yeah. Well, I was not there that day uh, personally, but you know, obviously the impact to me personally, as I said, he was like a brother. Uh, he was the he was the heart and soul of the team for so many years. It was a big decision. What do we do? But I knew that Marcus, he would be in his way. Said keep going, and that's what we did. And uh, to me, uh, his family uh, and the racing family around him was a tragic loss. But you know, to me, we moved on, and uh, unfortunately, that event uh, you know still is up here because he was really the catalyst, you know, and that cornerstone of our success early on. And just days before, he'd set the fastest racing lap ever um, at Talladega in the, in the 917, right? And yeah, the 917.30, you know, we were sponsored, uh, you know, by uh, Sun Oil Company, and Cam 2 was a, a brand. So the goal was to set the world close course record, which we did at Talladega. We were hoping that car didn't fly out of the track because, as you know, it's a very fast track. And, I mean, yeah, so it was a sponsor-driven event that marked, eagerly must have jumped into the car thinking that he could set the fastest lap is that something that he always talked about or he was as you guys always wanted well we felt from a, a b2b from a sponsor perspective uh, it would be great to have that record and we knew the car was fast we never really opened it up because you know it was a it was a beast i think when you when you think about how fast it was but uh, no we decided to do it uh, fingers crossed i was there that day and uh, you know mark was uh, at his best and uh, no problems. Uh, we got the speed record, loaded up, and went home. Did he drive the truck? Or? No, he, I didn't drive it. He didn't drive it that day. We were probably had a beer after that. I'm not <laughs> sure what we did. Uh, as you say, you left, you left Formula 1 in, in 1976. Have you ever been tempted to return um, in all the years? 
Well, we've looked at it, and, uh, you know, I, I know Gene Haas because of the re- racing relationship that we have in NASCAR. Uh, I think that, uh, as I saw, uh, Formula One and the commitment is, is, is it scaled up and the, and the cost and the people. I was just not going to be able to run my business operate in the U.S. in the race and try to be compete with the teams that you have over here, which, you know, the factory teams and at that per, at particular time. So uh, I think that uh, the cost levels are significant and we don't we would not get the benefit of, of the notoriety and the brand building from Formula One that we do in the U.S., to be honest with you. So I think there was a little bit of a business thought was overload and it really was where we thought we could be successful really made us say let's just stay the course in the u.s but you know when the rules change sometimes it'll draw new people in and i think that uh, i'm not sure the state of the sport today i only read i don't know what's really going on you only know what you read so i'm assuming it's uh, accurate uh but uh, no I, I miss it i'd love to be competing there and i'd love to come with american team with american drivers but uh, i'm not sure at my age that that's uh, that's the next chapter well, you never know. I mean, media, Liberty Media have, have made a big play of wanting to expand the sport in the, in the U.S. If, if its exposure was, if it became more popular, would, would you consider? I don't, th- you have to run the whole sea. You'd love to run a race with your people, but we just wouldn't be competitive. You know, the, the, the technology and the teamwork and the drivers, I mean, it's just, you can see Alonzo's come over and run some races in the U.S. and you see how good these drivers are in, in, in the rain. He was absolutely fantastic at, at Daytona, but I think that's uh, not on the shelf right now. Sorry, no, I was, I, it was just going back to not viewing yourself as a competitive force in F1. But when you first dropped into the Daytona 24 Hours, for example, I think you won the GT class that year in 1966. Right. Um, did you not feel that maybe we're not going to be competitive here? How did you view the competition that year? I mean, it, it can't be an easy just stepping in. Well, that was uh, interesting. Uh, as I talked about Sun Oil before, they were our sponsor. And Elmer Bradley was the head of sales and marketing. And I, he bought a Corvette from me at the dealership one night. And I talked him into, let's go to Daytona with a Corvette. It was red. We had a Sunoco decal on it and $250. So it was uh, somewhat of a, I wanted to go and see what it was all about. We had a sponsor. And that point, obviously, was the one that launched us, you know, through our Indy wins, our Can-Am wins, and things like that all became that first meeting or t- night with, with Mr. Bradley. But uh, uh, you never know. But it was, remember, I was a lot younger in those days. So... Uh, and probably uh, had a lot more, under, didn't have the understanding of the sport that I do today, maybe. I want to come sort of uh, right up to date, really, and, and, and talk about your um, 2018 season. Great season, probably one of your best. Um, well, when you think about 2018, we won 32 races. Uh, two of them were the, at Daytona and the weeks before the big race, uh, uh, 35 poles. Uh, we led over almost 5,400 laps in all the series and uh, uh, the Indy 500 obviously is a crown jewel. Uh, we let Will Power down during the season. We had a couple of failures. You know, one, he was on the pole in both cases, one at Elkhart and one in Portland. And we had a gearbox go out on the pace lap and an engine, which really cost him potentially the championship. But winning the Indy race and six other, six other races in total, you know, really was, uh, was, was a crown that we obviously would look for at Indy. Then you go to NASCAR and you think about uh, you know, the, the challenge you have there running 38 races. And, uh, you know, we really prepared at the end of that season. And we, we got Joey uh, in the chase. Uh, you know, they take 16 drivers. It comes down to four at the very end. And it's ironic that of the last 12 races in, in, the, 
in the series, you know, we won six. So we really were on our game at that point. And then to square off at uh, Daytona with four drivers, one who finishes ahead of the other wins the championship. And we not only won the championship, but won the race. And I think that was a, a crowning achievement for us because we won it in 12. We're the only team that's won it twice between 2012 and 2018. Now, people don't really look at that stat, but, but to me, as competitive as it is, I think it's uh, an amazing time. And then going on uh, to think about uh, down under the supercar series, I'm not sure how many people follow that here in the, uh, in the UK, but uh, it's a great series. It's road racing. We run, I think, 17 weekends and run two two different uh, Saturday, Sunday races. And, uh, and uh, certainly Scotty McLaughlin is one of the great drivers we've ever had on our team. He delivers, we're racing against three Holdens every weekend and he and Fabian Coulthard. And uh, it, was a, it was a crowning, in fact, in a two week period, we either we had no championships, either NASCAR or the uh, supercars, or we had two. And as it ended up, it was a fantastic season uh, for our team. Uh, you know, we have about 500 people on our team on a worldwide basis. And uh, uh, just think of the human capital. Uh, when we talk to people about it, 25% of our people today have worked for us for more than 10 years. So when you think about continuity in your business, drivers staying with the team, the engineering, and think about some of the great teams here in Formula One, you see that continuity, the ones that continue to lead and win. So uh, I think we just have a great bunch of guys. What struck me about um, the, the the NASCAR season, especially, is, is something that I paid a lot of attention to. Is when Joey Logano won, he seemed to have a big rivalry with Joe Gibbs Racing's drivers, and I always thought there was a lot of animosity between the two. Do you ever get involved in the feuds that he has? You know, especially when they come over into the pit lane and square off. Do you ever get involved, or? Well, you know, let me just take you back. Uh, uh, we were looking for a driver to drive with Brad Keselowski, and uh, Brad mentioned that Joey, and I'd watched Joey. He'd won a number of uh, Xfinity races, that we call it today, and uh, I felt that he would be a great driver. We contacted him. He was very interested, and Gibbs didn't have a full-time ride with him in the Cup Series. They did in the, in the second series, uh, the under series, so I called Joe, and he said, give me a week because we're trying to put something together. Well, obviously, in five or six days, he didn't get that done. So he came over with us. We didn't poach him. We were really very transparent. And I think that uh, he was like the, the last guy out over there. You know, they had these drivers, you know, Kyle Busch and the team they had there. And they were really interested in this young kid that came along. But he came on with us. And, and he got himself, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a charger. And uh, he got himself in a couple issues there, and he was kind of painted with a black hat on for, for a number of years. So there was some uh, certainly animosity. But, you know, Joey, off the racetrack, you think about it, the night before the, date of the race in Homestead, he and his wife went to a Publix market and handed out 100 turkeys to homeless people. So that's the soft side of this young man. But the real side is to see him race on the racetrack. And uh, he's going to be a leader, and, and he'll be a champion again, I'm sure, many times. But, uh, you know, you have these rivalries, you know, off the track, we're friends. On the, it's like Formula on the track, it's dog-eat-dog. Dog. So to me, uh, I think that uh, it's really never spilled over. And I know Joey well, and I, I, I back him, good, good or for whatever it is. He's my driver. He works for us. We work together, and we back him. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And you mentioned Joey Logano. I mean, how, how good is he as a, as a driver and what, what do you think makes him so special? Well, I think that uh, he's got a lot of experience. You know, he's in his mid-20s. Think about that. And he's been in, uh, in NASCAR for, what, what, eight or nine years. And I think that that experience, uh, I think that he wants to be a winner. Uh, he knows how to win. He's obviously done that. And to me, that uh, he works so well with a team. And, you know, we have a world-class company in, in Shell uh, as our sponsor. And, and he, is, he is connected with them on a business basis uh, as, as a real marketing partner. And with that, uh, he's grown from a commercial perspective because you got to have a good driver. They got to be able to communicate technically. Then they also have to have this commercial brain also that says, how do we promote the product? And it's not just outside, but it's inside Shell Oil. It's a big worldwide organization. So, you know, he's brought all that together for us. And what we try to do and I try to do is coach him in the areas that I think I can help. Was that always the case, or has that changed over, over the years, the, the commercial sense that a driver now has to have, and I suppose the, the media skills as well? But I mean, Well, when you, when you go back and think of the early days when, when we were racing, uh, sponsorships, $250, $300, and you think about these two or $300 million Formula One budgets, uh, obviously we don't have quite that kind of a cost base uh, in the U.S., but uh, we've got to tie together, and for us, being in the uh, integrated transportation services business, uh, you know, we have a lot of B2B. You know, who, what tires do we use? What oil do we use? What fuel do we use? You know, what paint do we use? All of these things cross our, our automotive business and also cross our truck business. So, you know, we're very focused on tying these B2B things together, and there's no question this racing is the common thread through that. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the sort of loyalty of your team and the fact that you have this flat structure and people have stuck with the team for many, many years. How, how do you kind of promote that? I mean, if you could bottle it and sell it, that'd be, that'd be something, right? I, I, it's hard to sell, I think, it, and it's hard to build. Hmm. And, you know, what we do is we have this, you know, very open, uh, transparent organization. And uh, as I say to people, I don't want to go to the final meeting when the decisions are made. I want to go to the pre-meeting where we can open discussion. And we try to have an open discussion with the key players in business on the race team, and including the drivers. And because if we're talking something we can't share with the people who are going to make it happen, we're making a big mistake. And I think it's, it's a core value. I think you build it over time, and it gets infectious. And uh, they know that, that my goal is that we need to be, there's two, we have really two customers, I say. It's the one inside you work next to each day, whether it's the engineering department, the build department, the engine guys. They got to connect. And then you got this partner outside, which is your commercial partner. But to me, uh, uh, I guess it's the DNA. My dad told me a long time ago that uh, 
if you're only worrying about what what you're going to get when you're working for a company, you're you're not going to get what you want. But if you support the company and the company's successful, then you're part of that. You're going to achieve results that you might never believe. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got a, we've got a we've got a heck of a lot of reader questions that I want to get to in a moment. But whilst we're talking about your company, I wanted to talk a little bit about modern automotive industry, which obviously you are very very much involved in. Um, is the win on Sunday, uh, sell on Monday? philosophy still valid do you think do you do you find as a business well i think uh certainly uh i'm looking in the united states now that uh, you know we represent chevrolet at indy you know we have ford uh, uh in the nascar side and the sports car side we're involved with acra and i think what they try to do the manufacturers is link themselves with winners and i think that's really what it is because it, it helps support the brand and in many cases these are companies that have uh, cars which are high performance and racing goes with high performance. It goes with execution. It goes with teamwork. And I think the sell on Sunday, a race that win on Sunday, and sell on Monday certainly is key because you go to the NASCAR races and the Ford fans or the Chevy fans, you go to Australia, it's Holden, you know, versus Ford. And, and you certainly in Formula One, when you look at the different manufacturers, look what Ferrari's been able to do to build their brand on a worldwide basis. And you just see it, you can feel it when a Ferrari is in, in the neighborhood. So, you know, to me, uh, there's a great connection with the auto industry. And, and I think that, that all of the CEOs in the auto industry seem to understand racing. And it gives them a chance, an outlet where they can really compete, maybe not in the boardroom or on Monday, but can compete on the track head to head under the same rules. And I think that's pretty important. And success there is uh, certainly something that uh, you know, means a lot to any manufacturer. And, and how, how would you say your, kind of your, your racing experience and your racing career has helped you in the boardroom? In the boardroom? Exactly. Well, uh, I think that... Uh, uh, I'll talk tonight about the three pillars. I think I mentioned brand, technology, and people. Uh, you know, racing, that's all about racing, isn't it, when you think about it. If you're not checking those three boxes, you're not going to be successful. And I think that's the same thing that we've done with our, with our company. And it was flat organization. And I would say 95% of the time we promote from within. We've got a diverse uh, uh, company. Uh, we we want to see... Uh, People uh, outside the sport come in uh, and, and this be an entry level job, no matter what it is in our car business or certainly uh, in the truck business and in racing. And uh, the, the racing side of it is just to me, you know, it's not like your quarterly earnings that you have to give at Wall Street. We give quarterly earnings every single weekend, don't we, on Sunday? So we're used to the high and we're used to the low when you when you think about it. But, uh, you know, overall. Uh, I think that uh, you know, the momentum and, and you know, my interest uh, is to continue to achieve. And if I didn't have racing pushing me, because nobody gives you the, a lap ahead, do they? You win last week, you don't get a lap ahead of the field. So that's how I run my business, trying to get a lap ahead of the field. Um, and uh, the news this week that, that Donald Trump, the President of the United States, is, is thinking about um, in, uh, imposing tariffs on, on imports, car imports. I know that you are very integrated uh, currently and historically uh, with European car makers and dealers. What's your opinion on, on, on that if it was to come to pass? Well, I, I think there's, there's two sides here. Uh, maybe people don't realize that uh, Sittner Group is a company that I bought from Frank Sittner, a, yeah. a racing guy. Think about how we got together, and he wanted to sell his business back in the early 2000s. 
and we bought Sittner. And, uh, you know, today, uh, Sittner is now the number one auto retailer in the, in the UK and Ireland. If you, I don't know if you know that. We are the number one. We have almost 8,000 people. And it's a very interesting point with Brexit uh, and the European Union, uh, you know, what's going to happen there. But there's, I think, a pretty good balance between export and import if you look at the European Union and the UK now. Of course, with manufacturers like Honda getting out, you know, obviously has a, another impact. But from a U.S. perspective, the German brands and the premium brands were about uh, uh, 66 percent of our business in the U.S. is, uh, is uh, uh, premium foreign, mm -hmm. uh, the Germans, quite honestly. And we see this Volkswagen situation has had a huge impact. It just trickled down in everybody's business. And uh, if you put a, a $2,500 tariff, which is what people are talking about, whether it's true or false, it'll have an impact. Uh, and I'm not sure, we're not sure what it is, but we're, you know, we're bracing ourselves today. We have to expect that it could happen, and it's going to mean you know, cutting costs. Uh, it could mean uh, reducing a number of jobs within the company, dividend paying. All these things could be uh, you know, part of our menu of things to do. So... Uh, it's troubling when we hear it because the auto industry in the U.S., it's not just the manufacturers building the cars. It's a supply chain yeah. of people and companies around the world, really. Not everything's built in the U.S., and I think that's one of the issues. The U.S. manufacturers might be in great shape, but a lot of their content is coming offshore. So to me, uh, uh, it's, it's certainly an issue that we talk about uh, and lately, almost every day, with the, people realize that, that the chamber uh, the, the, uh, have now given the president uh, his, their thoughts on tariffs. And he has 90 days to make a decision. Now, he might do a tweet out tonight uh, while we're here on what he wants <laughs> to do, which could have impact, obviously, in the markets. And do you think that, in a broader sense, could, could influence racing or could affect um, uh, the motorsports scene in, in the States and indeed here? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, uh, if, if, if there's two different, two cars, they're going to race, aren't they? So I don't see the umbrella of racing really being impacted by that. There might be some budgets that are cut because of manufacturers have to uh, look at their cost base. And that's even happening today due to the uh, sensation of autonomous, you know, and electric vehicles. So uh, I'm, that's, I wouldn't expect it to affect my race team. Fantastic, um, uh, Roger. We've been in. A, we we put out on social media uh, um, uh, uh, for readers um, to ask you questions, and we were inundated with uh, with questions. Oh, wow. So I'm going to have to um, start asking some of them. Um, it'll be fairly fairly quick fire, I'm afraid, because uh, we are running running out of time. Um, uh, I'd like to start with Geordie uh, Montaigne, who has asked. Um, uh, it'd be a pleasure and honour to have a question answered by Mr. Penske. So here goes. As a big Greg Moore fan, uh, I'd like Mr. Penske to share his memories of him, uh, whether it's one of the biggest what-ifs uh, in racing. Yeah, Greg, unfortunately, we had signed him up to drive our Indy car, and uh, uh, he was uh, injured uh, in the pit lane uh, early Sunday morning when a car hit him on his bike and then went on to that race, uh, you know, really with an arm. Probably it wasn't a wrist that wasn't in great shape and had the tragic accident. We felt he was going to be one of the superstars in the sport. We continue in contact with his family and his dad still support our team. And uh, it's a tragedy when you see that happen. So we really never had a chance to put him in the seat of a Penske car, but uh, we knew that he was a future star. 
And I have two that were sent to the Royal Automobile Club's Twitter. Uh, I'm going to just distill this quickly. Uh, Andy Halbury asked, um, how did you design, build the Beast, the Ilmor engine, and keep it secret all that time? Well, that's, that car's going to be on display. It's on display here tonight. Uh, you know, this was a, a challenge. Uh, you know, obviously, we had a Penske car, PC23, and uh, we'd run Mercedes and other engines in that chassis. But the Buick used to come to the to Indy, and they had uh, 10 more inches of boost, so uh, probably, what, 80, 90 more horsepower. And they'd sit on the pole, they'd lead 20 laps, then they'd blow up. So I got together with you know my partners, Mario Ilian and uh, uh, Paul Morgan, who obviously have been very successful. As you know, a UK company, again, that tie-in with Penske cars. And, uh, they, and I said, let's build a pushrod engine. So uh, I went to, I talked to Mercedes about that. Uh, Helmut Werner was the CEO at that point. He says, I'm in. So we started a design with a small group of people. We talked, to, didn't talk about it at all in Reading for a while. And then we had a group of people. I put them in a separate building. And I told everybody, if we talk about this, you're going to be cutting off your paycheck, meaning it's a secret. We kept that secret. We didn't have chassis dinos in those days and other things. So we actually took the car to Trent or to, to Nazareth in the snow, cleared the track, and we're running our durability laps with Paul Tracy in a ski suit. So, uh, and then we announced it, what, it was it, two weeks before the race, and uh, everybody couldn't believe it, that we were riding a pushrod. And we went on to win that race. I think we led every lap but two. And then they outlined, changed the car uh, engine specs, reduced the power by half. And then a week later, they, dis they, they disallowed the, the, the category with, with a push rod. So great history. Probably, I'd have to say, uh, that was one of the greatest victories. Nobody knew we were coming. And to see the Norberg Haug and, and Zetcha and Jurgen Hubert and, and the team Standing up there in the suite, seeing that, that Mercedes just blowing that off was, and seeing those guys in Team Penske shirts, our Penske Mercedes shirts was, for me, uh, something I'll never forget. These, these are all the Mercedes, the big wigs from, from Mercedes. Yeah, these are the top guys. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. the CEO and Hubert, the head of sales, and Norberg Howe, you might know that name. He, he was in charge of the racing business for a long time. It was a big day. We've had a lot of um, uh, uh, questions about the Senna test uh, in 92. Um, how close were you to offering him uh, a drive? Or was it a serious test? Well, I think it was uh, the relationship that Emerson Fittipaldi had, you know, with, with uh, Edwin Senna. And uh, it was great uh, uh, to see him jump in the car and how quickly he adapted to it. But at that point, his Formula One and what we were doing, I think it was more to have him get a chance to drive it, to, to understand it, and maybe that was going to be a, a touch point for us the next year or the following year. So, you know, something like that you'd love to do, and the fact that Emerson and, you know, our relationship uh, uh, with Emerson and the team, uh, our sponsors at Marlboro, it was a, it was a great, uh, great opportunity. Um, and Gav asks here, Who's your favorite British driver? Is it Dario Franchitti, who's here tonight, David Hobbs, John Watson, or Rob Gravett? Well, look, uh, all of those drivers are, are great friends of mine. So uh, to pick one, I'm going to get the other three guys mad. But uh, you'd have to say that, uh, uh, that John Watson winning a Formula One race for us was pretty special. And the disappointment uh, probably is that Franchitti, I knew him because of his Mercedes when he was running the, the sedans back early on in his career, became great friends. And he was a tremendous competitor of ours with Ganassi. On the other hand, uh, I'm just going to take Watson because he won our only Formula One race. And that's the only reason. 
I apologise for the curveball. Sorry. No. Is it true that you asked him to shave his beard off? I think he did shave it finally, didn't he? I he mean, did, it was, he did. Yeah, he still, look, he still is clean shaven. Well, listen, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we kind of have this clean look, you know. We're like uh, the choir boys who come to the track. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big guy on facial hair, quite honestly. Uh, uh, but uh, who knows? Uh, maybe on my, as I get older, I'll be more understanding. I thought Ryan Blaney looked quite good with the whole. Right. Did you see him at uh, Daytona this, uh, on his own? You should have seen him this weekend. He looked pretty sharp. Uh, Anthony Jenkins has asked, uh, Mr. Penske, who coined the term the captain? Uh, and do you accept it as a term of respect or endearment? Well, I think that I'm not sure where that started, whether Donahue called me the captain, but, uh, you know, at the uh, Hall of Fame induction uh, in NASCAR a couple of weeks ago, you know, I've got 13 grandchildren and uh, they call me Mr. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't, I don't babysit. I'm only having fun. So uh, my son said he was going to introduce me that night as uh, Mr. Fun. I said, look, I'm not going to be funded. I'm going to be the captain. So, you know, it's a term people call me. Uh, uh, certainly uh, it's, it's, a, it's an honor for people to call me the captain because it looks like I'm managing something to, uh, to have that, uh, that opportunity and name. Um, I've, got a, I've got another slight curveball here from a Scott McLeod, uh, who says, um, please could you tell us about your involvement in the America's Cup uh, and the crossover in technology between motorsports and sailing? And I think this is a reference to the fact that your team principal of the of one of the American Cup, America Cup's challenge boats. Well, um, you know, I remember Dennis Conner back uh, many years ago in, in America's Cup. Uh, I had happened to have the opportunity to go to Bermuda this last year and uh, see the race and you know, I was very interested to see whether, <clears throat> as an American, you know, I could play a part in, in bringing the cup back to uh, the United States. And uh, we were able to partner with uh, the New York Yacht Club, which obviously is iconic. Uh, the first American Cup was one with a boat called American. The future boat was called Magic. So our boat called is called American Magic. And I think that uh, we've, we've got a very serious competitor, certainly here from the UK, uh, people with great experience. But for me, it was, it was another challenge. It, it is the America's Cup challenge, isn't it? Well, for me as an individual and a person, and to come together with two other key principals, uh, Doug DeVos, uh, you know, certainly, and Hap Fouth, uh, who are great sailors, by the way. Uh, I'm, I'm a motor guy on the water, but uh, I understand it. But the technology of aerodynamics, the build of these things, the carbon and all the things, uh, it's just, you know, the foils and the foil arms and all these things. This is a brand new, when you think about it, it's a 75-foot hull uh, with, with uh, the ability to foil. You know, it speeds, probably these big boats will be over 50 knots. And, and to get up and see how these things operate. We have a mule that we have today that we've been uh, uh, testing with, and then we'll build our main two boats coming up here in the next 12 to 18 months. But uh, the technology, the communication, I had the, the five sailors at the Daytona 500 here this last weekend, and to see it, the only thing I didn't like was all the wrecks. I said, well, I'm not counting on you wrecking your sailboat. But uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great honor. I, I'm very interested to see the technology. Again, it's a lot about rules. It's a lot about who wants this. Nothing different than the, the political movements back and forth that you see in all sites of racing. So we'll see. It's incredible to see you still so, so excited about something very new, obviously. 
Yeah, um, it's a, it's, a uh, it's terrific. I was too. down uh, on the chase boat here uh, a week ago. I'm going back down next week again. But uh, it's these guys, I mean, to see it. We were in three to four foot seas, and to see this thing get up and you know on plane and on the foil and start to foil with a rudder and one foil in the water and you know with, with speeds you know approaching almost 50 miles an hour is just amazing. Um, a question from uh, somebody called Entropy. Um, uh, he asks, any drivers that you wished you had signed uh, and uh, and missed out on? Wow. Well, there's you know there's a lot of people. I would say that Scott Dixon, who has uh, quite honestly uh, really led the pack, you know, in IndyCar racing, was one New Zealander, a great friend of mine. I'm really am proud of what he's accomplished, both personally and you know, and on the racetrack. Dario would have been someone that would have been great. But you know, overall. Uh, Mario Andretti drove for us. We've had some great people. Maybe Foyt would have been some fun to have him drive for us at one point. But, you know, we are very satisfied. And when you look at the record, over 500 wins, and I think the number of drivers, we had the cream of the crop. And we were able to attract very good drivers. And they also delivered for us. So it was a win-win situation. Uh, you can't go back. You really got to look out the windshield and see where you're going. And I think our team going into 19 is we've got the best drivers we could have in all our series. Well, sorry, when you say Scott Dixon, um, Juan Pablo Montoya narrowly missed out in, in 2015. And, and when was it that you thought, oh, Scott Dixon's the guy? Well, uh, I, Juan's already driving for us. So, I would, you know, it's a driver I didn't have. No, Juan has been a great driver, came with us, won the Indy 500. You know, it's amazing when you think about his success. He's a key guy on our sports car team now. So, you know, it, it's hard to say, and it, it kind of puts you in a, in a tough spot there, especially when you have so many great people that have achieved success along with us. Mm -hmm. That's a real curveball. Um, and uh, finally, uh, Renato Garda uh, writes to ask, he says that um, in the pre-race broadcast for the Daytona 500, you mentioned that the one trophy missing from your collection is the Le Mans trophy, Le Mans 24. If your team were to tackle this event, uh, would it in, be in the prototype or GT class? No, I think that uh, we would love to go to Le Mans. I raced at Le Mans myself with a Ferrari with Rodriguez from Mexico many years ago. But you know, we would love to go there with a team. What we would do the year before we would run, we would go with, a, with a, certainly a GT car to understand the nuances of racing there and, and the rules and things. You can read it, you can see it, but you can't, you can't do what is like being there every day or during the race. So uh, we hope that these rules are sorted out and there'll be a point they're talking about supercars now, things that maybe we can be able to afford a budget to go there. But it's certainly on my want list uh, you know, to, to get a victory there. And you once approached Audi to run one of their LMP1s um, back in the day when they were... Well, no, I, I think that we were with the Porsches at that point. You remember an okay. LMP2, yeah. and we beat the Audis, and we, of course, had a great relationship there. But uh, they, they had Yost and other teams that were, you know, really doing a great job for them. But uh, I even said, hey, could we pull out one of these old Audis and maybe run one of those? But, you know, the diesel and all the iterations that have come since then, and certainly uh, with the hybrid, you know, technology now, there, there's a lot to it. But... It's, it's a big step, and, and, and we have to be sure it doesn't impact our core racing business in the U.S. So, and in Australia. So that's always going to be a question. Okay. And um, finally, a question from me, really. You mentioned earlier about your son, Jay, and his involvement with Formula E. Uh, I'm just interested in your take on that. It, it, it's, uh, the racing is getting better. The crowd seem to be getting bigger. What's your view on, on Formula E and, 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 the, and the move to electric? 
Well, I think that uh, Jay was one of the early adopters and, mm-hmm. you know, had a, a two, I guess, two of the charters, you would call them. And uh, I've seen him, uh, you know, grow with that. He, he's very in, uh, enthused with it. Uh, I think the sport has been supported by the FIA, and there's a certain amount of interest as you go country to country to support an event in the city. Now, I think most, most of them are going back to similar tracks. There's some that have fallen off, but the interest, and what's really spun it up, I think, is the fact that you've got most, you know, the European OEMs now, in fact, I think almost all of them, the major ones, have, have a couple of cars, and I think that's always gonna be key. They'll put capital in, they'll support the teams, and the technology will continue to grow. I'm, I'm glad to see now we have one car, not jumping from car to car, which yeah, I think makes yeah. a, makes a big difference so I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited to, to see it and, and of course uh, uh, my son Jay is uh, an entrepreneur and uh, this is what he wants to do and uh, it's his team and he's, he's, he's calling the shots and uh, uh, I hope he's very successful and uh, I congratulate uh, where the series has gone to date. Great. Um, I'm afraid, Roger, we are out of time. I'm being signalled out, but I'd like, uh, uh, I'd like to thank you for your time and for your generosity in sharing uh, all these memories that you've had um, of your extraordinary career. Um, uh, I hope that you enjoy the rest of your evening at the Royal Automobile Club uh, and at the annual motor, motoring dinner. Um, and, and thank you again. Um, uh, that's the end of this Royal Automobile Club podcast. Um, we'll be back in the coming months with more guests, and um, uh, we hope that you will join us then. But for now, for me and from Sam, goodbye.